Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If the rest of you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3, 14 through 21 is our passage this morning. Many of us uh, music fans were uh, very saddened in early October to learn uh, about the death of Tom Petty. And uh, Tom Petty was a very famous uh, pop rock musician, songwriter, famous I think mostly in the 80s. He wrote a song called The Waiting uh, in 1981. And uh, the chorus goes like this, the waiting is the hardest part. Every day you see one more card, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. And isn't that true? That when we're called to wait and wait and wait, it's sometimes not what it is we might be fearing that's so hard, it's, it's the waiting. It's waiting for guidance from God about how to react or how to proceed. It's waiting for vindication from God when you've been mistreated or falsely accused. It's waiting for relief from pain or suffering in some way. Waiting for dreams to be fulfilled. Waiting for a job to open up. Waiting for a good friend. Waiting for a spouse. Waiting for a child. Waiting is hard. It's very hard. And as we've been hearing here this morning, Advent, this season that we've begun today, is a season of waiting. And in particular, it's a season of waiting for God to do something. And sometimes it seems, friends, doesn't it, like God is not going to do anything. And we feel forgotten and feel that he's not going to act. The passage we're about to read here is going to set up a very long period of time that God's people are required to wait. And uh, again, part of the Advent series, we're going to be starting this uh, sermon series called The Mothers of Jesus. And uh, what we're considering over the next several Sundays is the prominent role that mothers play in the redemptive story. And of course, all mothers are required to wait, and some mothers are expected mothers hoping to have a child, and maybe they're struggling, they're also in a period of waiting. But one thing we see in the scriptures is this very prominent role given to so many women in general, but specifically to mothers like Sarah and Rebecca and Hannah and Samson's mother and Ruth and Elizabeth, as we heard about earlier, and Mary, who gives birth to Jesus on the very first Christmas. And today what we're going to be looking at is the very first mother in the history of the world, a woman named Eve, who is described to us here in the early chapters of Genesis, and we're going to be starting in the second half of this chapter, chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 21. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's word um, <clears throat> to set some context here. Here's where the story 
is um, God has created the world, created Adam and Eve. He's put them in a garden, um, put them in a perfect state of affairs, a beautiful place. He's told them to enjoy the garden, to work the garden, but he's also told them don't eat of this one tree, this one tree you can't eat from. And then we see the serpent come into the situation. The serpent begins to beguile and deceive Eve. She becomes deceived, and then Eve and Adam eat the fruit, the worst decision ever made in the history of the world. And as a result of that, sin enters into the world. And here is God now speaking to the serpent, Adam and Eve, uh, in response to this sin. So Genesis 3, starting with verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Father, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It's interesting that we're hearing here this morning about some uh, expectant mothers on this particular uh, Sunday where we think about this crucial role that childbearing plays uh, in the scriptures, and in particular, what we're considering is how it relates to um, the requirement that God seems to make of all of us to wait. Uh, God just seems to be committed to make us wait on things. Uh, we see it all through the scriptures, and we're going to see an example of that here in uh, this passage. So just two points that I want to share with you today. Um, you know, it wouldn't be so bad waiting on God if we were waiting in paradise somewhere, you know, in a world where everything was perfect. It's not so hard to wait in a situation like that. But one of the things that makes waiting so hard is the curse that God has placed on the world. So this is the first thing we want to look at. The curse makes waiting on God very hard. And so this is what we're seeing in this passage. It's the curse that God has placed on the world in response to Adam and Eve's sin. And this curse is expressed in three stages. In the first place, we see God's word to the serpent as he expresses this curse. Um, so let's look at verse 14 here. Uh, first of all, notice that 
it says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, the Lord God says to the serpent. This is a curse placed specifically and directly upon the serpent. Now, that's not something we'll see when uh, God speaks to Adam and Eve. God does not curse directly Adam and Eve. He curses what Adam and Eve do. But with regard to the serpent, the curse is placed directly on him. Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So these are just symbols of humiliation and defeat here. Dust on your belly. You know, sometimes we say, eat my dust, we might say. That's kind of a way of humiliating an opponent. And that's what these terms are reflecting here. God is expressing his intention to defeat and humiliate this serpent. Now, there's two things here that we should notice. And one is is an encouraging and good thing. And that is that God is stepping in to oppose evil. And we should be very grateful for that. That God is not one who just passively watches evil go by, but he wants to do something about it, and he intervenes here to oppose evil. He does what Adam should have done. Adam, we find, was just standing there passively when the serpent came to Eve. He didn't do anything about it. And so God does what Adam should have done, and he steps in to be our hero and to be our deliverer and our rescuer in defending us from Satan. So that's kind of the good news. But here's the harder thing, though, to deal with with regard to this passage is notice that it says on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life and so what we see here is that God does not intend to destroy or eradicate or annihilate or eliminate Satan from the scene now he could do that but he doesn't choose to do that all the days of your life what that implies is that the serpent or Satan is going to have time to wreak havoc on this earth. His activity is going to continue. For whatever reason, God has not chosen to remove him from the scene. Satan will remain active. And as we look at our world and the way things seem to be going in our world, it shouldn't be too hard for us to accept that there are forces of evil in this world. You know, I just think, again, I mentioned that Las Vegas shooting, and then after that, we got that shooting in Texas where a guy goes into a church and basically wipes out an entire congregation. And again, for no apparent reason. And discussions in the aftermath of that are, well, you know, we got to do something about mental health, we got to do something about gun control, and maybe we do, and maybe we should address those things. But a contributing factor to something like that is the presence of evil in this world. A a real devil who is at work, who's wreaking havoc, who exerts influence on people. Now we don't want to just blame the devil and, and just leave it at that. There are other ways we can respond to that, but we live in a world that kind of laughs at the idea of a devil until something like that shooting happens in Texas and then all of a sudden it seems a little more plausible. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. That's what we're dealing with. That's part of the curse. God has cursed the serpent but allowed him to continue to work. Well, we also see the second stage of this curse is God's word to the woman. So again, 
We don't see God cursing the woman, but we see him cursing what the woman does or what the woman will be doing, and we see this in verse 16. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the first thing we see is that the distinctive job of a woman, that is the the task that sets her apart from the man, childbearing, the thing that gives her that distinctive role in humanity is something that is now going to be cursed. It's now going to be a difficult thing. It's going to bring about pain and suffering. And so through childbearing, that's going to be the regular state of affairs. And any woman who's given birth to a child, I'm sure, can testify to that. But then he goes on to the end of verse 16 and says this kind of cryptic, strange kind of passage here. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, what does that mean? Part of what makes this difficult is that word desire is one that's not used very often in the Bible. Some people look at that and say that it's referring to a woman's romantic attraction or sexual desire for her husband, but... I'm not sure that's right. That doesn't seem to be part of the curse, really. I mean, that's a a natural and good thing for a a woman to desire her husband. Um, The word here seems to suggest not just mere desire, but the desire of the woman to over-desire her husband or over-desire control of her husband. The idea here is that the wife, as a result of the curse, is going to seek to dominate her husband. And so how do we really know that? Well, we get a little bit of a clue actually in chapter four, verse seven in Genesis where the exact same arrangement is used as we see here in chapter three, verse 16. Um, Chapter four, verse seven is talking about Cain and Cain's struggle with sin and God is speaking to Cain and he says to Cain, it, that's referring to sin, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And it's the exact same arrangement used in chapter 3, verse 16, when God says to the woman, your desire will be contrary to your husband, is one way of translating that, but he shall rule over you. Now, we certainly wouldn't say in chapter 4, verse 7, that sin has some romantic attraction to Cain. (laughs) Its desire is to control, to dominate Cain. And so it would suggest that that's the same meaning here in chapter 3, verse 16. The woman's desire will be to subvert the natural order that God has created in the relationship between Adam and Eve. He's placed Adam in a position of authority over Eve, but as a result of the curse, Eve is going to try to seek authority over her husband. That's part of the curse. But then it goes on, and it says, not just that your desire will be for him, but it says also that he will rule over you at the end of verse 16. And so again, we see another example of the subversion of the way things are supposed to be. The husband is supposed to care for his wife, supposed to cherish her and serve her and lay down his life for her, but instead he's going to try to rule her. That is that in response to the wife's attempt to dominate him, he is going to respond and try to dominate her. And he's going to then abuse his authority and seek to victimize and exploit the woman. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news at all lately, 
we have been seeing countless examples of men trying to victimize and exploit women in these various claims of sexual harassment that we've been seeing. I saw an article in Time magazine that listed 70 men who have been accused of sexual harassment in like the last two months. 70. I didn't know the list had gotten that big. And of course, some of those men deny the allegations, but quite a few of them admit them. And those aren't always situations where a marriage is, they're not always in the context of marriage. I don't know if any of them are in context of the marriage, but still part of the curse is this tendency of men in their power to abuse that power and exploit and victimize and manipulate women. Predicted right here in Genesis 3 and coming true once again in the year 2017. The curse on the world continues. So, one other stage to this curse is the word to the man. Verses 17 to 19. Again, not a curse on the man. I think I just said that, but I misspoke. Not on the man, but, what, but on what the man does. The curse is on the, the woman's activity of childbearing. That's the beginning of life. And then with the man, the curse is on not the man, but on the process of life. That is particularly his work. And we see these terms that are used to describe the curse on the man's work. Pain, thorns, thistles, sweat. In other words, work is going to be hard from now on. God put Adam and Eve in the garden, told them to cultivate it, take care of it. It was going to be a pleasurable, enjoyable, rewarding activity. But from now on, God says, work is going to be a pain. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to sweat to earn a living. Now, of course, many of us find enjoyment in our work. God's grace is still at work in the world, and so work is not 100% miserable, but I think we can all identify with work being exhausting. We can all identify with doing work, and it seems futile. We don't really know what purpose it's serving. Sometimes we feel like we're going around in circles. We don't get any joy out of it. We feel like we're not getting paid enough. In some cases, we suffer debilitating injuries in our work. And again, this is all part of the curse. Work is going to be cursed. This is what God has done as a result of the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled against him, and so he cursed the serpent. He placed cursed, curses on basic family unit, and he placed a curse on work. And the bottom line, to just sum all this up, is just the simplest way to say it, and it's just this. Life is hard. Life is hard and then you die, as some might say, the G-rated version of that statement. Life is hard and then you die. I mean, that's one way of looking at life. And it's at least partially confirmed here by, by Genesis. Don't be surprised when life is hard. You shouldn't expect life to be easy. You shouldn't expect marriage to be easy. You shouldn't expect getting a job and working a job to be easy. Don't don't be surprised when it turns out to be hard and disillusioning, when it wears you out, when you want to give up. Don't be surprised about that. I mean, sometimes you'll hear politicians come along and they'll they'll make these promises to you, like they're gonna they've got the way to eradicate poverty and make everything you know everything perfect. Or you'll hear cult leaders sometimes come along and say, "Hey, follow me, and I'll create a utopia for you." And you'll hear prosperity preachers sometimes say, oh, if you only believe enough, then God will make sure that you have all the money you need and that you never get sick. 
And every one of those people are forgetting that God has cursed the world and it operates under its condemnation, under God's condemnation. It's a hard life. Am I being cynical here? Am I being pessimistic? I would rather say I'm being realistic. I'm being sensible. The Bible is sensible. And it's just explained to us what we can all identify uh, as true in our lives. A distinctive mark of the faithful Christian is the one who's willing to wait on God while living in a cursed and fallen world. That's one of the distinctive marks of the faithful Christian. You're waiting in the midst of the hard marriage. You're waiting when your job seems intolerable. You're waiting when you're fighting some sin and it feels like you're battling with the devil himself. You're waiting when you're alone and when you're sick and when you're discouraged. and You don't give up hope. What did our call to worship this morning say God is good to those who wait and particularly when waiting is so hard in a cursed world look what it says here in Romans 8 the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth there's that theme again childbirth it's used as an example to describe creation under the fall groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, not just the creation, but we ourselves too. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we groan too. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. How can you not groan living in a cursed and fallen world? Don't feel bad, Christian, if you feel like you're groaning. Don't feel like there's something wrong with you, like you're not spiritual enough, or you're not as holy as other people because you feel groaning coming out of your heart. That's a normal response for anybody living in a world that's cursed, and that's what makes waiting so hard. But then the second part of this, though, that's the bad news. The good news is this. The promise makes waiting on God fully worth it. There's a promise here that gives hope to us in this situation. So what what is this promise? Well, it's a promise that's going to come through childbearing. And it's told to us here in verse 15 of chapter 3. This is called the mother of all promises. The very first announcement of the gospel. Verse 15, God speaking to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, here's what seems to be happening. There's a promise here to the woman, to Eve, a promise about her coming offspring. That is, she's going to bear a child. This offspring or this descendant is going to be one who bruises the head of the serpent. But in the process of bruising the head of that serpent, that descendant's heel will be bruised. Now, we're talking kind of figurative language here, but the idea is that the head, uh, an injury to the head, is much more significant than an injury to a heel. 
And so this descendant is going to bring injury or wound to the head of the serpent. In other words, that's an implication that the serpent is gonna be crushed, is gonna be destroyed, is gonna be killed in this injury to his head. But in the process of doing that, this descendant is going to suffer himself. He's going to incur injury. Not an injury quite as bad as an injury to the head, but an injury to the heel, nonetheless, that is gonna be significant. The serpent, the devil, will be conquered, but it's gonna be through an act of suffering by a descendant of Eve. Now, the first response anybody should have to this, and of course, most of you, I think, know, know the story, but if you were reading Genesis for the very first time and you hadn't read the rest of the Bible, you would say, who is this guy? Who is this descendant? And you gotta imagine Adam and Eve, of course they didn't know how the story was gonna end. Adam and Eve certainly were wondering, who is this guy? Who's it gonna be? Wouldn't it be most, most natural, don't you think, for Adam and Eve to probably think it would be their, their son? Like Cain? So they give birth to Cain? But it wasn't Cain, was it? Cain was not that descendant. Well then they give birth to Abel. Was Abel? the descendant referred to? No, not Abel. Then they give birth to Seth. Does Seth turn out to be the guy? See the Messiah? No. And what do you think Adam and Eve were thinking about that time? Is God gonna fulfill this promise or not? It sure doesn't seem like it to me. And isn't that the way it is so often that we hear these promises of God and he doesn't seem to be doing anything about it, and we think he's not. We think he's absent, we think he's forgotten. And yet, what we learn as we look through the rest of the scriptures is, is that's not true. God is active, he is doing something. He is always up to something, whether we see it happening or not. Something wonderful, something great. And so as we look through the rest of the scripture, what do we see God doing? Well, here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna raise up a man named Abraham, and from Abraham's gonna come the nation of Israel, and we learn that this descendant is gonna come from that nation. And then we learn a little later about um, the 12 tribes of, of Israel, and we learn that there's a specific tribe called Judah, and that that descendant is gonna come out of that tribe. And then later we learn about the kings of Israel and we learn that there's a king named David and we learn that this descendant is gonna be a son of David. And then we hear other prophecies like this descendant is gonna be a suffering servant from Isaiah 53. We learn that this descendant is gonna be born to a virgin from Isaiah like we heard earlier. And then we learn that the descendant is gonna be born in Bethlehem from Micah. And throughout all this time, the Bible has given us more and more clues about who this descendant is gonna be. Just filling in the blanks narrowing it down, and the whole while that's happening, God's people just simply have to wait. This is a process that goes on for centuries. God is a slow-moving God. He moves slowly. I wish it were different. But that's one thing very clear in the scriptures, and I'm sure throughout the history of Israel that a lot of people, looking back to Genesis 3.15 and hoping in this descendant, I'm sure a lot of people just gave up and said, I'm tired of waiting on this God. Nothing's happening. Where is he? He says he's gonna do these things. I don't see any evidence of it. But then others, they just kept holding on to the promise. They kept believing. They kept trusting. 
And then one day, a star appeared in the sky above Bethlehem. God hasn't forgotten. God's going to do something. God will fulfill his promise. And as we look into the New Testament, we see an example of this in Galatians 3. Now, Paul here does not refer back to Genesis 3, but I mentioned Abraham. What happens is the promise in Genesis 3.15 is then reiterated to Abraham, and that promise mentions the same thing that 3.15 does, which is the presence of this offspring of Abraham through whom the descendant's going to come. And so Paul in Galatians 3 says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say unto offsprings, so what Paul is saying here is that we're not talking about a group of people, we're not talking about a nation, referring to many, but we're referring to just one person. That's kind of a big debate in Genesis 3.15. Is offspring singular or plural? And what Paul is saying is primarily it's referring to one person and to your offspring who is Christ. That's the descendant. That's the person promised. It's, it's Jesus. He's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He's the one who came, and when he gave himself up on the cross and suffered there, that's being wounded in the heel. And when he raised from the dead and overcame the power of Satan, that's when he crushed Satan's head. And so we see this in Hebrews 2, referring to Jesus. He himself likewise partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's the fulfillment of Genesis 3. 15, that in the resurrection of Christ, the devil will be crushed. Now, you might say, well, the devil's not crushed. Well, what happened is Jesus, in God's plan, uh, decided to come in two stages. So he's come once to die and to be raised again, but he's going to come again. And so here we are, as God's people, in another period of waiting. (laughs) We're waiting for him to come a second time. But certainly, we have the assurance that if he came the first time, he's going to come the second Now, it's been 2,000 years, and so again, God's working slowly again. But he's coming. Jesus is coming again, and when he comes again, he's going to take the devil, and he's going to throw him into the fires of hell. And Genesis 3.15 will be fully, completely, and totally fulfilled. Now, we might ask this question. So why is it that God waits so long? Why does he require us to wait on him? Why does he move so slowly? And the reasons have to be different for different people. Uh, And I can't say exactly why God is making you wait in your particular situation, whatever it is. I'm not sure about that. But here are some reasons why I think God makes us wait. One is to teach us that we're not in control. Teaches us that it's not up to us eventually to plan out our lives. It's to teach us that we're not God and he is. It's to teach us that we are fully dependent upon him. It's to teach us that he is sovereign, we're not. He can plan things and do things as he wishes. We're not in control. There's something a little bit alarming about that, but if we know the goodness of God, there should be something very comforting of that. The second thing is it assures us that his timing is perfect. I mean, do you really think that if you had the opportunity to lay out a timetable for how things should go, that it would be better than God's timetable? 
I mean, we really want things to happen in a hurry, but God wants to do it slowly. There must be something better about doing it slowly. It just reminds us that we cannot plan things better than God can. His timing is perfect. And then lastly, perhaps we wait so that we can find out that Christ is fully sufficient. That, that Jesus is better in the long run even than that which we are waiting for. Jesus is better. And we'll find that out. Here's what Romans 8 says. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I don't know what you're waiting for right now. I know there are people in this congregation who have waited a long time for things, and and those things have been denied to them. I just want to encourage you to, to, to believe that the longer that you have to wait, the sweeter it's going to be when the glory is revealed to you. Well, what happens in the meantime? Adam and Eve are given this promise, and nothing happens. Adam lived 930 years. That's a long time to wait. So what does God do? Look at the end of the passage. It's wonderful that God steps in and meets what really is Adam's greatest need. His greatest need apparently was not to see the immediate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. His greatest need was to have his shame covered, to have his sin forgiven, the sin of rebelling against God in the garden. And that's exactly what God does. Look at verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. He took care of their shame. Garments of skin, garments of animal skin. What had to happen in order for him to get those garments of skin? An animal had to die. And here again, we get a peek into the gospel. Death was required in order for Adam and Eve to be covered. And it points ahead to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who had to die and shed his blood in order to cover our sin so that we could be robed clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And then we see also uh, in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And I think what that means is, is this. Adam and Eve heard the promise, and as Adam named Eve, he came up with this name, Eve, which means the mother of all the living, because he knew that when this descendant finally came, that this would be a descendant who would bring life to this world, would bring hope to this world. What this tells us is that Adam believed God's promise. He believed the gospel and named his wife mother of the living. And the question that this brings to mind as we read this is, do you believe? Do you believe the promise? Are you tired of waiting? Have you given up? Or do you believe? The best example of waiting for a long time that I could think of um, were fans of the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> 108 years they waited for a World Series victory, and finally it happened in the year 2016. And I saw an article in USA Today uh, interviewed a 95-year-old man who had been a Cubs fan all his life, and 
the World Series was over, the Cubs had won, and, and he said, the wait is over. All my life, I've watched them lose. <laughs> but now, I am so happy, happy, happy. Now, if that man could say that after waiting so long for just a little baseball team to win a series, friends, how, how much more sweet and wonderful and rewarding is it going to be when Jesus comes again and takes you into his arms and wipes away all your tears and says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's going to be something worth waiting for and you won't be disappointed. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, that you're faithful. We don't know, Lord, all the reasons why you make us wait so long. All we can say is we know you're wise and good, and we trust you. So show us your faithfulness, Father, and give us faith to wait on your timing. In Jesus' name.